Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast, sitting here by myself today. We have a very special guest. I gave him, last time he came on, he's a reoccurring guest, I gave him the nickname, the Dalai Lama of Fintwit. If you're not following him, you should definitely <laughs> follow him. Mr. Ian Castle, he started the Microcap Club, and he also started something new, which we're going to be talking about here today, Intelligent uh, Fanatics Capital Management. Ian Castle, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. It's uh, it's an honor to be on the program again. Uh, you know, I, I'm an avid listener, a weekly listener to your program. Really big fan of yours and Jeff. So it's awesome to be be here with you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming back on. And how this came about is, you know, we obviously both kind of operate in the same space um, in a way. So you and I talk often, and we thought it'd be a good idea to chat about illiquidity and sort of the power of capacity constrained strategies. And when you uh, brought it up to me, I thought it would be a great topic to chat about because a, because a lot of people that listen are individual investors, and I think it'd be good for them to focus more in this area. Um, and B, and probably more importantly, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings in this illiquid space. Um, I don't know if like the term illiquidity just scares people off, um, you know, or what. But I thought it'd be a good, uh, you know, good uh, worth our time to chat about. So, but maybe before going into that, maybe give us an update on what you're doing. Obviously, you've had a lot of changes um, in your professional professional life. Lately, so maybe just sort of give us an intro on that. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be happy to. And kind of to reiterate what you you just said, I think you know, I think one of the reasons you and I and, and Jeff connect on a on a few different levels is we sort of operate these illiquid, uh, capacity constrained strategies. And you know, I, I think if you want superior returns, you need to find an inefficient, illiquid market and work every day to be one of the best investors in that market. I know that's what you and Jeff are trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do, um, you know, in my uh, little niche of investing. And, you know, I think this notion of capacity constrained investing, you know, doesn't get enough positive attention. You know, the only strategies you hear about are the ones that can scale big, you know, the ones that are making headlines in the financial news. But there are many strategies, you know, like yours, like mine, that are small, and they're small by design, and they really need to kind of stay smaller to fully exploit those inefficiencies in their opportunity set. And, you know, I think uh, this will be a fun conversation today. Um, you know, when I look at kind of how I've evolved as an investor, I've been a full-time private investor, specifically focused on small micro-cap companies, you know, for over 10 years now, just managing my own capital and over those... 10 years and even before that, you know, I've been approached by, you know, several people, you know, wanting to know if I could manage some capital for them. They wanted to, to have some exposure to the type of companies I'm invested in and that type of thing. And I've always said no. And I've always said no because uh, maybe an experience I had during the dot-com bubble crash where I worked for a financial advisor where I answered phone calls from clients that were screaming and emotional and I just didn't want any part of that. And, um, you know, really over the years, I've just said no because I've always said no. Um, and you keep saying no because you've always said no. And yeah. then, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was like 18 months ago, you know, somebody mentioned it again to me. And I thought to myself, you know, instead of just saying no right away, maybe I'll, you know, actually think about this. And, you know, talk to my wife about it, prayed about it. Um, and it was something where I felt more called and compelled to kind of launch an investment strategy uh, specifically for accredited investors seeking kind of intelligent exposure into these small micro cap companies, which is really my universe of investing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's that's beautiful. And I think sort of the situation with Jeff and myself and Focus Compounding is it's kind of similar. Jeff has, obviously, Jeff's 33. He's, he's a lot older than I am. And we had Focus Compounding, the website, and then we had the podcast. And, um, you know, while starting those two things, we had a lot of people reach out often asking if, if we were managing capital. And uh, even through the years, I mean, Jeff has been investing and writing about investing since, I mean, if you go back on Wayback Machine, I think his first article goes back to maybe 2003. 
2005 or 2006. I mean, so a very long time. Um, and he said over the years um, that people have asked him numerous times to manage capital. And he always said that he wasn't interested uh, simply because when you're running a business, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast before, it's a lot more than just investing, right? Now you're dealing with compliance, you're dealing with uh, the investor relations side of things, you're dealing with the marketing side of things, pretty much a bunch of stuff that takes you away from your core competency, uh, which is investing. And and there's a lot of people that in any industry that they are in, uh, they're sort of a star, maybe at a job or at somebody else's business, and then they decide to go by themselves and, and branch out on their own. And a lot of times those individuals fail because it's harder, right? You're having to deal with so much other stuff that takes you away from what you're good at. So with Jeff and myself, it just made a lot of sense to partner up where he could focus 100% on his time on investing. And then I focus, I'd say probably 90% of my time on everything else to take care of it. Uh, it's probably a little less than 90%. Um, and then, and then assist him in the vesting process as well and, and sort of be his number two in that regard. But yeah, so I completely understand, you know, where you're coming from. And that's great that you, you made the leap finally. And, and I am assuming you feel pretty good about it and you're happy that you did it. No, I mean, I'm excited about it. I mean, it's been kind of officially launched uh, November of last year, just with, you know, really my first, my account. In yeah. the strategy. And then uh, <laughs> a couple of friends and family uh, came on, you know, February, March, and then officially launched in mid-May, so just a few months ago. And so it's been, uh, it's been a fun process. It's uh, really been reinvigorating me and it's, uh, you know, I'm excited about it. I, you know, you mentioned a little bit about your background and launching your strategy. I thought maybe uh, very briefly, what we could do is maybe just talk to for a minute about how would you define what you and Jeff do? How, how do you kind of define your strategy as a whole? And I'll do the same, then we can get into some of these topics. Yeah. Like no, I think that's a great segue into it. So we focus on this term that we call overlooked stocks. And within overlooked stocks is um, it's just a group of stocks that for one reason or another tend to go um, unfollowed by the market. They're a little bit more obscure or a little bit more off the beaten path. So in this category of stocks, we we have spinoffs, international stocks, illiquid stocks, micro caps, dark stocks, um, stocks that don't file with the SEC, really just a group of stocks that um, you know funds due to sizes or they don't tend to focus on these companies or due to other reasons, maybe individual investors don't focus on them um, because of liquidity reasons or whatever. Um, they just tend to go a little bit bit more um, under followed by the market. And it's kind of like the rule, first rule of fishing, fish where the fish are. And we just think that there's more opportunity in this space. Um, a lot of times people put us in just the microcap bucket and think that we're just microcap investors. And microcaps are just a component of uh, the style that we invest in uh, because we think obviously there's a lot of potential ideas in the microcap space. Um, I think even thinking through our portfolio right now, we have two stocks that are over a billion dollars um, in, in market capitalization. And then I think we have a $300 million uh, stock. And I think the smallest one is probably in the $100 million space. So a lot of times people put us in just a microcap bucket. But really, just microcaps are a component of that. Um, and really, we just decided to focus in this area because we thought when putting together a package for clients, we just wanted to be different. And I know everybody says that. And I, I have, there's other bloggers that have, um, you know, firms themselves. And I'm friends with a lot of these guys. And, um, you know, I mean, there's, they operate more so in the large cap space and they're very successful doing that. Um, you know, and that's great for them. But, you know, I mean, I would argue with our strategy, our stocks, they don't tend to follow the market. So in my opinion, and maybe we should run a study on this, they tend to act more on their own performance metrics. So I feel like it's almost true stock picking instead of, oh, the market's up today, so I know my portfolio's up, or, oh, the market's down, so I know my portfolio is down. Um, so they tend to just not follow the market. So we like that aspect of it. Um, like I said, maybe we should run a study on it. Uh, when it comes to beta, I think every company we do own besides one is a negative beta stock. Um, so I thought that's pretty interesting. And when we actually put the portfolio together, Jeff and I noticed that after the after 
putting the stocks in the portfolio. That was just something that we noticed. That's not something that we targeted. So um, we're still kind of crafting together how we defined overlooked stocks, you know, but we know it's spinoffs, um, illiquid stocks, illiquid microcaps, stocks emerging from bankruptcy, um, and all the stocks I referenced b- before. But liquidity also has a, 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 um, a huge part in that. And we could get into that in a little bit. But yeah, definitely go ahead and give a, an overview of your strategy, because I know you're pretty much just focused on microcaps, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think I, you know, if, if listeners want to listen to the previous podcast I did with you, that also probably gives a pretty good overview of my strategy. So I'm not going to hit on it too much right now. But, you know, really, I can define it down to a sentence, which is, you know, my goal is to own the smallest, most illiquid, least institutionally owned, misunderstood businesses that I can find that are run by intelligent fanatics. And so I'm really looking at those companies that are you know microcaps are sub 300 million and really looking at the the smallest 20 percent of the microcap ecosystem so maybe we'll just call that sub 100 million the reason i gravitate there is because that's where these companies are the most illiquid that uh, are not institutionally held they're usually not um, in the russell indices or anything like that and so you can really find an edge and the cool thing is there's a lot of companies down underneath sub 100 million i think there's still seven eight thousand microcap companies which is more companies Companies than trade on the NASDAQ and NYSE combined. So there's a big sandbox sandbox of companies to look at. And it's just uh, an area where, you know, I've kind of refined and evolved as an investor. And it's where I like to play because the the bigger, smarter capital uh, really can't be down here because these stocks are too small, too illiquid for them to even care about. And that's, uh, that's the opportunity for smarter money that might not be, you know, managing $100 million. Sure. <laughs> um, so that's, that's really the opportunity set. But I think, you know, you, you invest in illiquid equities, obviously, because you're looking at undiscovered ones or completely unknown ones. I'm curious, you know, how do you kind of define illiquid? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the way that we sort of think about it is, and I could take a stock that which we've talked about publicly, one that we do own and one that our clients do own, uh, Computer Services Inc. It's right around a billion dollar market cap. Um, you know, this is a, a perfect stock that we we view as an illiquid stock. A, it's a great company. They do uh, payment processing for the banking industry. Incredibly sticky business. Um, in 2008, they grew. Um, banks they don't fire this company at all. So it's an incredibly sticky business and it's fantastic. Um, but so like the average daily volume on this stock is right around seventeen thousand seven hundred seventy six. Just got these numbers beforehand because I knew we were going to reference it. Um, and so, if you take that, the average daily volume, and you you multiply that by um, the average trading days per year, I did 252. You get right around 4,479,000 shares that trade per year, um, and they have 27.7 million shares outstanding. So the float really only turns over about 16% per year. Um, you know, so that's incredibly a liquid stock. So that's sort of the way that we think about it. Um, you know, and then another way that we, we sort of think about, and again, we didn't start off with this mindset. It really just happened when we put the portfolio together is an illiquid stock could be um, a a negative beta stock or a beta of less than one. Uh, But typically how we think about illiquid stocks is really just, um, how many shares trade in relation to the shares outstanding. What about you, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially when you're kind of benchmarking companies against other companies and comparing how much of their how much turns over in, the, in a year or a month. Um, you know, taking that daily volume divided by the float, you know, is a good way to do that. You're kind of comparing against other securities. You know, my my definition for illiquid is pretty simple. You know, can I buy my position that I want in a single trading day? Yeah, that's a good one too. <laughs> you know, so that's that's all I define it, and obviously that will. That is different for every single person that is on that is listening to this program. You know, if I'm, you know, there might be an illiquid microcap that trades ten thousand dollars worth a day, sure. which is very illiquid. You know, but if somebody only wants to buy a thousand dollars worth of stock, you know, that, that stock's liquid. You know, but if somebody wants to buy a hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, you know, that's going to take several days, if not weeks. And for that person, or it would be a very illiquid security. So I think it's almost up to the individual, their buying power, how much do they want uh, that kind of defines illiquid to them. Sure. No, I think, and I think that's a great way to uh, put it. What, what attracted you to this area? And, and why do you think there's such a negative, I guess, stigma behind illiquid stocks? And why do you think people just don't focus in this area? You know, I think primarily people don't, and I'm, I'm just going to 
from my experience of illiquid microcaps, and as you said, you mentioned a billion dollar. I mean, illiquidity doesn't have to mean small company. Yeah. I mean, there's Ill- illiquid large caps, illiquid mid caps, small caps. But with my experience of illiquid microcaps, unfortunately, people get their first entree into the microcap ecosystem a lot of times by a hard mailer that they get in the mail that's touting, yeah, touting some you know, some fad or something like that, calling it the next Amazon yeah. and, and all of these. I even did a study on it on Microcap Club where I actually collected um, each hard mailer I received in the mail. <laughs> and, and I stopped doing it because it was just, I, I, I wanted to be like a positive light for the space, not a negative one. Yeah, I was, sure. I was posting these things That's and I was hilarious. like, you know, but I, I think I was up to 25 hard mailers and all of them within three months went down 99%. Wow. Um, so you're like, well, that's a good shorting strategy. And yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, I think, unfortunately, that's a person's first entree into microcaps, into kind of penny stocks, to use the derogatory term that everybody likes to use. And a lot of people, they get that bad experience and never, they never look back at it. Um, and, you know, and I think people like to cast a negative light on it because that is kind of their first experience in it. Um, you know, from my experience, you know, it's funny, new people that I talk to about microcap investing, they're like, oh, that's where kind of like the frauds and the sleazy, slimy companies and, you know, bad management teams, that's where they operate. And I'm like, no, you know, I think people think like 80% of these companies are kind of these sleazy, slimy companies. And that's not the case at all. I mean, it's probably less than 3% or something like that. And and if you're going to talk about companies that fail, okay, well, let's let's compare micro caps that are public to venture capital yeah, or sure. private equity. My bet is that less companies fail out of the micro cap ecosystem than that fail out of venture capital, you know. And so, you know, there's definitely this stigma around microcap investing when compared to venture capital and private equity when really they're the same thing we're all investing in small emerging companies the companies i invest in are just publicly traded sure no and i I think that's a great and that's sort of the way that we think about it is it's we think about ourselves as private investors uh that are just using you know the public markets to invest in companies so i and that's sort of the mindset that we have i'm curious and and I thought one thing that's fascinating, and I know you reference this study a lot, and Jeff and I have referenced this study a lot too. How even in um, you know you, you go from small cap or micro cap to small cap to mid cap to large cap to mega whatever, less liquid stocks, no matter the size of the business, they tend to perform better than more liquid stocks. Why do you think that is? Even on the big huge companies. Well, you know it's it's interesting, and and by the way, a segue on this. You know, the, the white paper, Liquidity as an Investment Style yeah. by um, Roger Ibbotson, who's a Yale finance professor. You know, he's that's the paper that you're probably referring to. Yeah, it is. Yep. And unfortunately, you can't find the updated paper anymore. I was going to say, I, it vanished from the internet. I just, I just literally realized that three days prior to this call, and I reached out to Roger for it. And he emailed me back and said they can't do to some copyright stuff. And so he sent me like the 2012 Yeah, version. that's the only one that we could find. Yeah. I think is the 2012 yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It, well, it just, it's well, vanished, have... which it's crazy because it's like, oh, when it's out on the internet, it's out there. Because I've seen the most recent one before, but it's I just know. gone. Yeah, it literally has vanished from the internet. I saved it and I didn't. But anyway, it, it's a great study and I, I tried to, to get him to give that to me, but he didn't. But, um, but yeah, I mean... it. You have illiquidity across all market cap classes. When you look at micro cap, the least liquid micro caps average like a 16% annual return since you know 1971 in his study. You know, and, and ironically, the worst performing kind of part of the matrix is liquid micro caps, which is interesting. Uh, but also, when you look at liquidity down all market cap classes, illiquid large caps compared to illiquid or illiquid large caps compared to liquid large caps, illiquidity, you know, beats out liquid and across all market cap yeah. classes. Um, and I think it's just, it's, it's just because they're, you know, undiscovered. They don't have the turnover. You know, you can even find, you know, mid caps and, and lots of companies of that size that don't even have any analyst coverage, which is mind boggling when you yeah. think about it, mm-hmm. but you can't. Um, so, you know, I think it's just, you know, the fact that illiquid micro caps probably have the greatest return is just because you could, you, combine illiquidity with small and probably the turnover, the dollar value of that ter- turnover is likely smallest out of illiquid micro caps compared to large caps. And so that, that chance for that alpha or you know, the bid offer spreads are even greater down here in micro cap. 
Sure. Yeah, no, and I think that's it. And, you know, it's interesting. One time I was telling, I was at a dinner and I was telling a, a gentleman who I've never met before. He just happened to be at the dinner. I think he's a, a, a crude oil trader for a firm or something like that. He trades in a very liquid market. And I was telling him exactly what Jeff and I do. And he kind of made a joke. He's like, oh, wow, sounds like a wide bid and ask spread. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it, that's true. But, you know, we're also kind of strategic about the way that we do place um, the orders. And I think that's one of the turnoffs to a lot of people in the illiquid space is because the spreads can be, um, you know, pretty wide. And, and like you said, yes. they can't get in their full position sometimes in a day. Um, so I'm kind of curious how you think about placing orders. How do you have some sort of strategy to this? Um, and then sort of your way about doing that? You know, I obviously use limit orders. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I could sure. place a market for you if I wanted to. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when I'm buying or selling, an illiquid company, you know, I'm watching that market very closely. You know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, level two, which is kind of the depth yeah. of the market on the bid and offer side. You know, so if you don't have level two, um, you just see the bid and offer. Level two gives you sort of an idea of what's behind that, uh, the first line of bid and offers, you know, and see where the next bid and the next offer is. You know, but, you know, how I place orders is kind of specific to the situation, meaning, if it's a new position and I made a decision, a decision to buy it, you know, I likely believe that it's undervalued right now. And in fact, I'm, I've likely assessed, you know, what premium to the current market price I'm willing to pay up for a full position. So, for example, I might be willing to pay 10 or 20 percent more than the current stock price to oh, get wow. a position to get a position because the upside over a few years is that great. Sure, yeah. And honestly, a lot of times that's even an interesting hurdle to bring in new investments in the portfolio. It's like if I'm not willing to pay up a little bit for it, it's probably not that great of a position, uh, situation. No, it's a good me. filter to have, for uh, sure. You know, so this doesn't mean that I'm buying it aggressively right away and taking offers. It just means I have some wiggle room to get my position. I still want to get them as cheaply or inexpensively as possible. But if I see some size on level two, let's say, that is available above the current offer price, I might just go ahead and just take it to get closer to my target position. You know, and since markets are markets are rather fluid, even in illiquid names, you know, I'm sizing up the market and watching for any stock that might pop up, you know, on level one or level two. But, you know, I try not to jostle the market too much. You know, if I see 10,000 shares available in the offer, I might take eight and yeah. not take the full, the full offer. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to make the stock look strong uh, if I'm buying, and I don't want to make it look too weak if I'm selling. Sure. Yeah. And, and typically, what do you think is the time span uh, for you to get like a full position on? It can take days to weeks to months. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. we're kind of we're kind of in that same boat. I mean, the way we go about it is we don't put we, we've never and I guess we do kind of even though we're both in the illiquid space, it you, where you operate is probably more illiquid than where we operate because like I said our smallest companies right around 100 million and then the next one's 300 million. So, you know, there's it's not that underfollowed, I guess you could say, or like on like less than $50 million market cap or whatever. But um, the way that we do it is we just really just put a limit out there and we're, we're okay just waiting. And you'd be surprised sometimes, even if you're trying to sell 10,000 stock or shares or buy 10,000 shares, sometimes somebody will just take you out because they just want to get out. Yeah. Um, you know, so the way we go about it is we just, you know, place a, a limit order. And if it's at the bid, maybe we'll just put it one a penny above where the current bid is and just really wait. And we haven't ran into um, too many issues getting in, or getting in or getting out of a stock. So that's just kind of how we think about doing it. But, um, you know, because there is such a negative stigma between like the wide bid and ask spread, you know, of course, you just want to put a limit in and just wait, be patient. If you were to buy a private business, um, you know, I mean, you'd think probably a little bit differently about it. So that's just the way that we uh, think about buying the companies. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit different down in the smaller realm, um, you know, to buy a position, like like how I defined illiquidity, if I can buy a position in a day or not. You know, somebody's full position is different than somebody else's. You know, if I'm looking to buy size in a company, you know, let's say, um, um, if I want to buy, let's say, 1% or more of the company, let's say, based on the 
based on the trading volume, this might take you weeks to purchase that amount in the open market, if not maybe months. So sometimes what I'll do is reach out to management to see if they know of any large sellers that might want to sell oh, wow, that's interesting. A, a block of stock. Um, you know, the, the bad part about doing that is it seems as soon as people know that there's a big buyer around, there's no stock available. Yeah, <laughs> just sure. like, just like, you know, kind of vice versa on the sell side then too. Uh, but that's, that's been a way that I've been, you know, able to get positions sometimes is literally just reaching out to the company and, and asking them if they know of anybody that's interested in selling, you know, a position. Um, you know, the kind of the other issue that you can run into uh, especially in small liquid micro caps, is getting the full position that you want at the price that you want. And I kind of hit on this a little bit earlier, sure. but a lot of times you don't. A lot of times you don't know how much stock you'll be able to acquire in the market until you start. So let's say you want to make a new position that you like five percent of your portfolio. What happens if you can only get one or two percent instead of five before the stock moves substantially away from what you're willing to pay? And so, you know, I might only get a fraction of what I want. How do I deal with that scenario? Mm-hmm. Some people will be like, well, you know, now you're stuck with a one or two percent of your portfolio in something, and you're devoting significant mind share to that one or two percent. You know, it's not really worth it. I, I kind of look at it differently. You know, I'm fine having a one or two or three percent position in it because if management executes, I might be willing to pay higher, substantially higher, to get to finally get that full position. Um, that I want. So I normally just wait and let management execute and let management execution dictate my position size over time and what I'm willing to pay. Sure. Do you ever, I'm kind of curious and I'm, I'm always, I always ask this question when I talk to investors because I've heard that a lot of investors do it. Um, if they find like an idea that they are interested in, sometimes they'll put on either like a 1% position in their portfolio or a 2% position because they think that they'll watch it more. Do you do that ever? Um, I never really understood why people do that. No, I, I tend not to do that. I mean, I, kind of like the smallest I'll go, or at least try to go, is sort of like that three to five uh-huh. arena. And that might be in circumstances where it's just so illiquid, it's hard to acquire more than that. I'm not able to locate size from any sellers sure. directly. Um, you know, one of the other things that I kind of run into that kind of goes hand in hand with this is <laughs> these are small companies. So, Absolutely. you know, you can run it, you know, here in the U.S., if you go over 5% ownership of a company, you have to file a Schedule 13D with the SEC. You know, this is, and this is something you need to think about if you're managing larger sums of capital. So let's say, for example, you know, I'm looking at a 10 million market cap company and I want to buy $500,000 worth of stock. Well, that puts me right at 5%. Is filing a 13D with the SEC something I'm willing to do? You know, because you're basically showing your hand to the rest of the world. You know, in some cases, you know, you might be willing to do that. In other cases, you're not. You know, for me, I try to not ever go above 5%. I try to stick to like 4.9%. If it's something that I want to buy a significant piece of just so I can kind of stay under the radar a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of another thing you kind of run up with these specific to small microcaps because the size of these companies are so small and you can actually go up against that 5%. Yeah, and, and on top of that, you run separate managed accounts similar to Jeff and myself currently. And even we've ran into that uh, into that issue where we were looking at, I'm not going to say the name of the company, uh, but it's you know a very small company. We'll say anywhere in market cap between 10 and $20 million. And we thought, okay, so if we do put in, um, you know, if we do buy up 4% of this company and you get new clients, it's like you're going to have to pair it back in somebody else's account to put uh, in in somebody else's account. So it was like, given the current structure that we have, it would have been pretty tough to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, and, you know, a lot of the conversation so far, we're just talking about buying, you know, what about selling? Yeah, absolutely. That too. Yeah. You know, and, and what happens with illiquid stocks for the most part, and you run into it sometimes where it's not like this, but at least with small micro caps, it, the, the, high, the more management executes, the higher the stock goes, the more liquid the stock becomes. And so, you know, I'm never really worried about illiquidity per se. I'm just worried about being wrong. Sure. If you're right, liquidity takes care of itself. But, yeah, and those are the best you know, plays is when you buy it when it's exactly. illiquid, you sell when it is liquid. But, but you're not going to be right all the time, you know, especially with my type of investing, probably more so than yours. You know, there is some turnover to my portfolio. This is not buy and hold. This is buy and verify. This isn't a game of I need to be right 10 out of 10 times. This is more of a 6 out of 10. And the ones that I'm right 6 out of 10 times on, you know, just own more of them and just ride your winners and cut your losers as fast as you can. And on those losers, 
they're still a liquid and they probably haven't worked out and they're still illiquid. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So, you know, it, it's a big reason why, at least with my type of investing in these companies, you really need to have your pulse on the company, on the management team, um, because you need to spot those signs of that investment thesis cracking before other people so you can get out of your positions before other people to limit to a hopefully a gain but at least limit to a small loss instead of a large loss sure no and i think that's that's a great way to think about it so how do you um you know what are some issues because you're you run a concentrated portfolio correct and i think you've said in the past like you target what 10 names yeah 10, yeah so that's 10. so that's very concentrated and um obviously jeff and i we target six six to seven, um, you know, three domestic and, and here in the United States and typically the other half um, overseas. Uh, but what are some issues have you found with running in concentrated portfolio in illiquid stocks? You know, it's it's probably those issues I just described when it comes to buying, finding the right size, getting the position you want, perhaps having to file as a 5% holder, deciding whether you want to do that, not to do that. You know, just thinking about, you know, if you're wrong, what happens then? You know, is it a position that you can get out of? You know, all of those things like come into play and it's much more manageable when it's just your own capital, when it's just your own portfolio. And then you layer on the complexities of having outside accounts that are also in a strategy like this. It kind of layers on <laughs> a whole bunch of other kind of emotional hurdles as well as physical hurdles to be able to execute the strategy adequate, adequately, professionally, and you know the way it should be managed. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't know if you guys run into anything in particular with the way you guys invest in concentrated illiquid equities. You know, given your strategy. Yeah, no, nothing. Um, so obviously, we're very concentrated. Six to, I mean, yeah. I think at one point the. Um, we had about 30% of our uh, portfolio in one stock. Um, so we're incredibly concentrated. But have we ran into any issues? Nothing uh, really comes to mind. Um, you know, I think a lot of it also is how you manage the portfolio. So when a stock runs, maybe you own 30% of your portfolio, and now it represents 40%. Um, and you want to pair it back to 30. Um, you know, one of my favorite conversations I've had on the podcast was with Peter Rabover of Artco Capital. Definitely check his stuff out if you're not familiar with him. Um, and he was talking about when he worked at a fund, how um, they kept Valiant at, I think, I'm going to butcher the number, maybe 5% of the portfolio. And they owned it for a very long time. And, and whenever it got to, say, 8% of the portfolio, they would just uh, manage the portfolio and bring it back down to 5%, as opposed to to Sequoia, who sort of let that position run. So then when the whole Valiant debacle happened, um, you know, his fund where he worked before, Valiant wasn't, it wasn't that big of a catastrophic loss for them because they managed the portfolio. They kept pairing back the gains, um, you know, as opposed to Sequoia, who it was a massive position. And, you know, obviously when the whole thing happened, that was a lot more meaningful. So I think it comes down to just really how you manage the portfolio, um, you know, because we are so concentrated where if something happens, obviously you don't want to be put out of the game. No, exactly. I mean, you know, we both kind of manage a liquid capacity constrained strategies. You know, why do you why do you think other professionals don't don't do this as well? Yeah, you know, I think that's that's something I think about a lot. And um, a, I think it's it's the liquidity part, kind of that what you referenced earlier. But when it comes to professionals, I think it's because you do have a top on how much assets you can manage. And we could talk all day long about the conflicts of interest in the securities business, right? If you look at, and this is just my opinion, right? If you look at the evolution of any successful fund manager, for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, they all typically started off, in my opinion, in a more nichier type of strategy, right? Uh, whether you want to call it Buffett 1.0 type of stuff. Um, and then how does it go? They perform incredibly well because we're talking about the successful ones. They get tons of inflows get more um, interest from investors, they get flooded with capital, because if you perform well, there's an infinite amount of capital that will find you if you can market that performance. Um, and then they're, they're forced to shift, um, you know, shift styles because they have so much more capital, which is great, by the way, for the manager, because now he's getting more fees, but that's not always great for the client. So for Jeff and myself, when we thought about, you know, putting it together our firm, we said we didn't want to be in the asset management business. We don't want to be sales guys. We just want to be investors, put up good numbers for our investors, and then go about our business. Um, so for us, we know that our strategy is probably going to stop right around 300 million. 
there's not a lot of hedge fund managers out there that would say, I would rather run a $300 million firm instead of a one, two, three, four, five billion dollar firm. You know, so I think it really comes down to the fees. Um, you know, maybe it's it's easier to market a more liquid firm instead of a less liquid firm. We haven't really had that experience yet because everyone that comes to us to invest is familiar with our strategy. They've listened to the podcast or they've read our blog for a very long time. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to the fees, quite honestly. And um, knowing that your our top is probably right around that $300 million mark. What, what about you, Ian? What do you think about that? Well, I and I agree with what you just said. I mean, I think a lot of other professionals you know, don't run strategies that can top out, you know, but, but first and foremost, I think what you do, what I do, it's not easy, you know, and I think it, I might be biased than I am, but I think it's easier for experienced micro cap investors to go upstream than it is for traditional large cap investors to come downstream, you know, because investing in small businesses is, I think, a, just a different skill set. It's more of an art than a science. It's more of a bet on people. Um, and generally, you know, whether it's yours or mine, you know, it, it isn't scalable, you know, and because it's not scalable, you know, I, and when it comes to strictly the strategy that I'm now operating for others, you know, I view my strategy as more of an entrepreneurial product offering, not an institutional product offering. You know, the reason is I find entrepreneurs and even private equity and venture capital investors that I've talked to about kind of my strategy, you know, they, they gravitate towards it. They understand it. They understand this is... Um, this is one of the only areas in the public markets that you can get an edge in, and especially from entrepreneurs, you know, that run small businesses or have grown small businesses, something they connect with because they're just investing in themselves. You know, it's just that these businesses are public, where theirs was private, um, and so I think all of that kind of lends itself to kind of, you know, if, if this can't scale to a billion or five billion or a hundred billion, which this couldn't you know, then what's the point? Sure, because yeah. it turns into asset gathering. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, for for my strategy itself, you know, before launching the firm, you know, I spent months thinking about capacity and illiquidity and how to structure the firm the right way. You know, there's only so much capital you can put in the opportunity set of companies that I like. You know, you're talking about eight or 10 or 12 companies that are small and illiquid. And, you know, we already talked about illiquid stocks and how it can take a long time to acquire positions. You know, the combination of those two things equates to starting small and growing small. And strategically starting small and growing small is sort of the opposite of traditional asset management sure, where it's yeah. all about asset gathering. Yeah. But starting small is the only way to do what I'm doing in the small microcap ecosystems. You know, I couldn't I couldn't deploy $20 million right away into these companies. You know, it would take me a year or more to even do that. You know, I need to start smaller. And it's why, you know, at least with uh, the way I'm launching it, you know, I'm, I'm raising about $5 million, uh, which is a very small amount in the grand scheme of things. Um, but, you know, but in addition to that, I've capped the amount that each investor can invest initially. Yeah, I thought this part was interesting. Yeah, and so... You know, the, amount, the maximum amount someone can invest is 200000 The minimum is 100000 The maximum is 200000 You know, I don't think anyone ever puts a maximum on anything. I was going to say, that says <laughs> yeah. a lot about you and your strategy. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah, but, it, but it's the right thing to do for the success, for the long-term success of this strategy. We're investing in illiquid equities. They're volatile. You know, the reason there is a maximum is really, you know, it's probably two or three reasons. But first, I don't want any single investor to hold the strategy captive. You know, this way, everyone is more of an, on an equal footing. You know, second, you know, I'm managing a strategy through an SMA vehicle or separately managed accounts. There's, you know, there's no such thing as a lockup in an SMA. Yeah. You know, so bringing on the right investors is really, really important. I want people to have a truly long-term perspective. You know, having a maximum investment allows me to know their investment with me as a small percentage of their net worth. You know, this this will help kind of shield them from the inherent volatility of this portfolio, which it is. You know, and third, you know, since there's no lockup, the maximum amount is an amount I know I could get back out of the market in a reasonable time period and not disrupt everybody else's portfolios at the same time. You know, I hope no one pulls their capital. You know, I've been having a lot of conversations, said no to a lot of people uh, that wanted to invest that I could just tell it wasn't for them. Yeah. You know, but in that rare occurrence that somebody decides this isn't for them, I can get them out and not disrupt the whole strategy at the same time. Yeah, and I think that's the right way to think about it. And like I said, it does say a lot about you and your strategy. Because when you said 
when we were talking on the phone, I think like a couple of weeks ago, and you were telling me that you know we were just catching up, and you were telling me that um, the maximum you'll take is two hundred thousand dollars. I was like, wow, that is I've never like you said I've never heard of an asset or an investor, someone that's managing money, um, say you can't give me more than X. You know, so I thought that was um, pretty interesting, and and I definitely do agree with you from our experience in taking the right capital, and not only for limit you know, purposes or whatever, but really just the right individual where they understand what you're doing. And it's almost if you do that and you say no to a lot of people, but the people that you do bring on, they're more on your team, I feel like. And you're in this together and they're more supportive. I mean, we've, uh, we have a great investor base, um, you know, for correspondence purposes, everyone has the ability to text or call or email me. Most people text now, which I think is interesting in 2019, you know, so a lot of my business is done through text. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, they uh, expect a, a, a monthly memo from Jeff once a month on everything going on in the portfolio. But the amount of times I speak to our investors is not a lot. I mean, sometimes it's, Hey, check this link out. This may be interesting to you, but, um, we don't, we have a pretty quiet crowd, which is great as investors because that just allows us to do what we, you know, set out to do. Well, it is. I think you raised a good point. Um, a few minutes ago when you talked about your blog, this podcast, people engaging with you, they kind of know what you're about before they even reach out to you about making an investment with, with you. Yeah, we're not selling. We're just saying this is our process, you know? Letting the right investors self-select in, and it's one of the things that I, you know, that I try to do too with obviously Microcap Club and other, other, um, other things that I have, but also, you know, when it comes to just conversations I'm having with some new people about this strategy, I mean, literally the first thing I say is, you know, this market goes down 30% in the next 12 months. I'm down 40 or 50%. Are you still interested? Yeah. You know, because what I view this strategy, I don't view it as risky. I view it as volatile. And so I'm kind of testing it. Okay, this is the type of volatility to expect. You know, can you really, you know, can, can you handle that or not? And if you can't, let's just, it's okay. You know, it's just, it just isn't for you. Um, and so I think it's important to really bring on the right investors. And, you know, what's hard too is trust can't be built in a day. You know, and so, you know, I'm limiting this maximum upfront investment, but I kind of view this first five million as sort of kind of punching a membership ticket. You know, let's let people get used to it. Um, let, you know, and over time, I'll ultimately let people put more in because in the event that the strategy drops, you know, that's when you want to be adding. Sure. Uh, but, you know, at least initially, I think doing it this way is the right, right way to do it and the right way to build the strategy over time. And ultimately, you know, I don't know what the ultimate capacity of what I'm doing is. It's less less than 50 million, and probably south of 30 million. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think the key, like you hit on it before, is not to style drift. Sure. And, and grow out. At least it's important for me not to grow out of this small ecosystem. Um, but I could also see it evolving in different ways that would inherently allow it to scale a little bit larger. So, you know, I don't want to spend too much time thinking about what the magic number will be. Uh, I kind of Actually, I'm reminded of that old Jim Rohn saying, uh, which, where he said something like, you know, I'm going to go as far as I can see, and when I get there, I'll be able to see further. Yeah, sure. That, no, that's kind of how, yeah. how I think about this, the future of this as well. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, plan to do the best I can now and, you know, execute in the present. And, you know, when, when we get there, you know, we'll be able to see further than that. No, I think that, I think that's excellent. And I love that quote. And, you know, I'm curious. So you were a private investor for 10 plus years before running um, your firm. I'm kind of curious about your experience managing this strategy for investors as opposed to yourself. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely different. Um, you know, when you support yourself on your own capital, uh, there's a certain set of emotions that you were cons- constantly bombarded with, and maybe just to name a few of them, you know, number one, you know, trying to keep a long-term focus on your investments while paying short-term bills. You know, it's um, you know the weight and the burden of that is you know far greater than um, really the the money that you need to to <laughs> to raise and, and, to, and to pay those bills and to cover your living expenses. But you know, a lot of times during the good times, during bull markets, it doesn't you don't really feel it because things are doing well, but it's when those times get a little choppy or when you go through a bear market is when the rubber hits the road. And that's when you can't let, you know, the fact that you need to sell stocks to pay bills kind of defeat you and make you really short term focus, which is what it can do if you allow it to happen. You know, another emotion just from kind of matching your own capital is for whatever reason, the more concentrated you are, the more performance tends to be kind of come in bunches or be lumpy. You know, the highs are 
really high and the lows can be low and the stagnation in between can last a really long time. Sure. And so, you know, you, you kind of to, to piggyback on that, you know, you have to stash capital away during the good times to make it through the bad times. You know, you, the key is keeping as a full-time private investor, the key is keeping your fixed costs low and your variable costs variable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like travel, I travel far. Um, but in the end it's, it's worth it. You know, I did it for over 10 years, just, you know, now I'm doing it for, for a few other accounts, but you know, the autonomy is why it is worth it. You don't have a boss, you don't have clients, you don't have to wear a suit and tie. You don't have to worry about that. All you have to do is do the work and keep your edge. Yeah. And, and really kind of now that imagine a few outside accounts, it's been fun because I've been able to dive into kind of some more emotions that I've been hit with and maybe just one that comes to mind. You know, my strategy has said before, it's not buy and hold, it's buy and verify. There's a certain level of turnover in what I do. So I'm not talking about massive turnover. I'm just talking about maybe in a portfolio of 10 to 12 companies, maybe two or three or four will fall out every year because, you know, and a lot of times they'll fall out because I've sensed the story has changed and decided to exit the position. Or, or maybe it's because something's really went up too far too fast. Um, but, you know, earlier this year, for example, as a real example, in the strategy, you know, I purchased a position and in two weeks, I sold the entire position. I bought it because I, I knew it extremely well. I've been following it for years. But something material literally happened in that two weeks that I owned it after I purchased it and it made me sell it. And I remember thinking to myself as I was selling what my investors were thinking because this is an SMA, they can log yeah, in, they can sure. see what I'm doing on a daily basis. You know, I, I just bought, you know, it, I was just thinking of them looking at it and be like, does he know what he's doing? That looks totally irrational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, and you can kind of get, it can kind of slow you down when you start worrying about what your investors are thinking about what you were doing. And, you know, it only took a few minutes for me to say, you know, stop thinking about that. You know, this is what, you know, they're kind of paying you for. This is what you would be doing if it wasn't, if they weren't even here. This is what you'd be doing for your own portfolio. And that's how I look at running this strategy too. It's almost like nothing has changed. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, amazing and and if you're thinking about it as if you're running your own money which you are running your own money alongside them obviously that's uh, a great mindset to have i'm kind of curious how do you go about finding the stocks that you invest in the portfolio um you know i would say maybe there's four or five big ones you know number one obviously founder microcap club uh you know it's a great resource for microcap investors specific to microcap and really i would say more specific to the uh, the smaller microcap segment and started microcap club in 2011 when I was, a, you know, I just started to become a full-time private investor because I wanted to see more ideas and I wanted to see what other experienced microcap investors liked and why. Um, but I didn't want it to be public. I wanted it to be kind of private. So, um, you know, as you know, with, with your community, Andrew, it's like, you know, there's, you know, there, there's some different individuals that navigate these illiquid stocks and some of these people don't want their uh, self out there in the public domain. And so it's more comfortable for them to post maybe in a more private forum or domain. And so Microcap Club was launched in 2011. Uh, and so we have about 200 members from around the world. And now we have some subscribers, too, that uh, pay to gain access to the conversations we're having. But it's really meant to be an idea generator for ideas. We have over 600 companies that have been profiled since 2011 on Microcap Club. There's a constant flow of, I would say, anywhere between five and ten new ideas a month of, of Microcap companies. And it's mainly... North America, so U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia. Uh, U.K. and Australia are just kind of picking up some steam. There's not many companies from those geographies, but they're starting to get more and more of them. And so I would say, you know, I don't want to tout microcap club too much, but I think it is probably the best resource for finding ideas and microcaps. And number two is really, because of microcap club, I've been able to find out who the best microcap investors are that I know you know, through Microcap Club, them coming in and becoming members, me be able to see how they post, how they think about things, and be able to have kind of these private relationships with some of these investors that where we, behind the scenes or on the phone or through email, talk about what we like and why on a more detailed basis, and, it, and really having a dozen to 20 of those individuals that just sharing bouncing ideas off of uh, is just a huge, huge resource. And then, you know, kind of more the traditional things, you know, PRs and filings, you know, you just stumble upon press releases, you, you're looking at filings constantly, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and, you know, there's other ways too, like when you're reading a 10K, 
which I know you and Jeff do all the time, you might look at who their competitors are, and some of them might be public too. Yeah, you start yeah looking we at always that. do that. Yeah. yeah, so you kind of get pulled into looking at things that way. And probably last but not least, but it's amazing how just kind of like serendipity clicks sometimes too. Sure. All of a sudden. So like you randomly put in a symbol and it's actually an interesting company <laughs> that's happened a couple times before so those are probably the, the, the main areas yeah no I, yeah I think and we're kind of we're actually in the same boat I mean we have obviously focused compound in the community and a lot of times it's other people writing about ideas um, we read other bloggers who are in the similar space to us um, a lot of times people bring us ideas as well because they know it's something that we'd be interested in or, or classify as overlooked um, screens all sorts of stuff like that but no I mean um, a great way to learn about a business or find a new company is when you are looking at a, a company, go and look at like three or four of its competitors. And you could really learn if you read about all the businesses, which one is, um, you know, the best company in that industry. So yeah, we definitely do that as well. And, um, people bringing us ideas and the deal flow is great. So, I mean, I always say, let, let me put it this way. We have more ideas coming in than, than we have time. So it's just constantly sifting through those and, and kind of going from there. Right. No, I, I, I had a feeling your your resource would be your website, and also, uh, you know, it's amazing just how the Twitter sphere. Yeah. Because both you and I are on Twitter. I mean, you get ideas thrown at you through DM and and privately through other people on Twitter. It's on uh, you know, social media can be a great resource. You know, just log it and then seeing what the activity level is. Uh, and discussion on companies on social media is kind of a huge, a, a g great way to kind of gauge if it's truly unknown or not. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're diving into something new. Yeah, you could just type in the cash tag or whatever, and if people are, exactly. if no one's talking about it, you're like, okay, this is kind of interesting. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's, uh, we're in the same boat there. Well, Ian, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast here today. I mean, we always have the best conversations, and we were actually laughing a little bit earlier because you're the only twitter account that i have push notifications on so whenever you tweet i get something right to my phone so if, if you're not following <laughs> ian and i'm sure you are definitely go and follow him i think it's just at ian castle right yeah it's just my name at ian castle yeah and and go ahead and tell them your other websites microcap club where they could find you at yeah i mean for so i'm, I'm on microcapclub.com uh, also website intelligentfanatics.com which is another community started a few years ago with sean eddings uh and primarily the the gauge of that site is trying to um trying to evaluate and study great leaders you know because the key to finding great businesses early is finding great leaders early um, and so really the the gauge of that website is is leadership leadership principles and then also the, the website for Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management, management is just if.capital. Perfect, perfect. And I want to thank you so much for coming down the podcast here today. Everybody else, thank you so much for listening. If you're not following me on Twitter, be sure to do that at Focus Compound YouTube. Obviously, we are doing videos now, so go to Focus Compounding on YouTube and hit that subscribe button. And lastly, if you want to help out the podcast, feel free to leave a rating and review. Jeff and I definitely appreciate it. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.